Um, if you have a Bible uh, tonight, I would invite you to open it to Galatians chapter number one. Galatians chapter number one. Um, in case you're new or you hadn't been here in a while, uh, we are reading through uh, the New Testament together as a church. Um, we have a Bible reading plan. Um, I think there's some on the table out there. There's some um, in the lobby as well. And uh, we've been reading that together. It's a pretty simple process. We read five chapters a week. Um, so you got five chapters for seven days. And so it gives you some flexibility to spend some meaningful time with God, but not be too rushed or too in a hurry or, you know, try to bite off, you know, more than you can handle. So we, we, we like the plan that we've been doing. Um, but in our journey through the New Testament, we started with the Gospel of Luke. And then we jumped over into Acts in the early church, and we spent some time in James, then back into Acts, and then now, uh, based on where we are um, in the context of the early church, we have now read or started reading or halfway through reading, and we'll complete this week, um, the letter to the Galatians. And so, for those of you who are always curious, why are we jumping around, or why are we going to this letter or that letter? Um, well, in the life of the early church, uh, when the letter of James was written, was about the time that we paused in Acts and then started reading in James. Same thing is true for Galatians. Because of the missionary journeys of Paul, um, it's believed that this is probably about the time in the lifespan of the church that Paul was writing the letter to the Galatians and spending a little bit more time um, with the churches that were there. Also, this particular um, letter, the context of it, deals with the same context as the disagreement that took place in Acts chapter 15. So we recently read Acts 15 and Acts 16, and then we jumped into Galatians, and you can, you'll see from the context, because of the Jerusalem Council, or the big meeting that took place in Acts 15, that dealt with Jews and Gentiles and their relationship, because of that, in the context of Galatians, makes sense that this is about the time that would be dated uh, for Paul to have written this letter. And I'll give you an example. This is from Acts 16, verses 4 through 6. It says, as they went on their way through the cities, talking about um, Paul and Silas at this point in time, many of you made some comments to me about at the end of chapter 15 is where Paul and Barnabas kind of split ways over a dispute. And so at this time, Barnabas took John Mark and they went um, and, and, and met with some churches. And then Paul took Silas and they began on what's known as Paul's second missionary journey. But anyway, that's what's happening. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So it's referring back to Acts 15. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Pyrgia and Galatia, I apologize, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Now, I only read that to you because the reason why we transition from Acts 16 to the letter to the Galatians is because Paul and Silas and Paul and others had went through Galatia in order to deal with a major topic that was happening in the life of the church. Now, I want to give you a little context before we spend some time there. The thesis of the letter to the Galatians is very simple. It's this salvation by the grace of God through faith in Jesus for the justification of our sins. Danny, you said it was simple. I know, right? A little bit hard to say. Here's how Paul kind of summed it up in that letter. This is in Galatians 2.16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to, ju in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. 
because by works of the law, no one will be justified. That's just kind of the heavier context of the book of Galatians. They're dealing with Jewish law versus Christianity and the move toward following Jesus and Gentiles and how all that meshes together under the umbrella of one church. What's happening? What do they do? Uh, how do they answer these questions? What does it mean uh, to be a Christian? Do you have to do this? Do you have to do that? And so there's all this confusion that's happening in the life of the early church. And Paul's writing to remind them that their justification isn't through anything that they can do, but their justification uh, from their sin and righteousness to Jesus comes through Jesus and nothing else. I've read the word justified really means just as if I'd, right? So think about justified, but say it as just as if I'd never sinned. That's kind of the concept behind justification. It's that when we give our lives to Jesus and we trust in his work, not our own, God imputes on us the righteousness of Jesus and there is no record of our wrong. It's as if it never happened just as if I'd never sinned. As a matter of fact, I read a story that illustrated what justification in Jesus looks like. The story goes that there was a wealthy Englishman who purchased a Rolls-Royce car. Anybody have a Rolls-Royce? Any wealthy Englishman in the room? Apparently not. Now, this was long before the days of warranties, and the man took the car on a vacation to the south of France, where as he was vacationing, the car broke down. He wired back to the factory, and the company flew a mechanic, long before flying was commonplace, to the south of France to diagnose the problem. After doing so, the mechanic flew back to the factory, picked up the part he needed, flew back to the south of France, repaired the car, and sent the customer on his way. The man expected at this point to get a sizable bill for what the labor would have been, but as time passed, no bill came. He finally wrote a letter to the Rolls-Royce factory, thanking them for the excellent service they had given him when his car broke down, and asking them to send him his bill. After all, he's a wealthy man, and he could certainly afford to pay for the services that were rendered for his car. He finally received a letter from the company, and here's what the letter had in it. Dear sir, we have no record of anything ever having gone wrong with your car. End of story. So, Danny, how does that show us a picture of justification? Well, that's how God looks at those of us who have given our lives to Jesus, right? There's a bill that was due. We could not pay it. When Jesus paid the debt, it was gone, right? We're not justified because of me or because of you or because of this church or because of our community or because of our family or because of what we've done. No, no, no. We're justified because Jesus paid a debt that we owed and could not afford. And when he paid it, God ripped up the bill. He threw it out. And if we were to ask him, God, how do I pay what I owe? God would look at you and say, well, because you know Jesus, I have no record of what you owe. It's just as if I'd never sinned. This is exactly the context of the letter of Galatians. It was, as you might assume, the cornerstone of the Reformation. And the reason is because the theme of the book is freedom from the law through grace. Martin Luther, the great reformer and theologian, he called this letter his wife. It's an interesting conversation that he has in some of his writings. You said, Danny, why would he call this letter his wife? It's because he said he was wedded to this letter. 
Like this was the backbone of everything that he believed, his faith in Jesus versus the Catholic Church who said he had to live a certain way. He finally realized, I don't have to do all these things you're telling me to do. What I have to do is trust in Jesus. He paid a heavy price for making that stance. Now, the church had seen plenty of success when Jews were teaching other Jews, but when Gentiles were added to the mix, especially when it was entire Gentile churches, many different questions began to come up. Questions like this. Whether or not Judaism was a major part of Christianity. Do we still observe the law of Moses? Do we still follow the dietary laws and practices like circumcision? Should Gentiles and Jews be in the same fellowship? Do we celebrate all the holidays and the festivals? This is the main concern of the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. not going to read the whole account, but hopefully you did. As people were coming and talking about how Gentiles could not be a part of the church, Jews were raising the argument that they're not good enough. They haven't done what they have to do. They haven't worked enough. They haven't followed all these rules. They can't be a part of the church. This is when Paul and Barnabas and even the Apostle Peter stood in the gap and said, no, that's not the case. They have received the same spirit we've received. By grace, through faith, they were saved just like us. And it was in this council that they decided there would be no more rules like this. There would be no more regulations to become a Jew. There would be no more, as they called it, yoke around their neck. Instead, they would experience freedom through Christ. Now, after the Jerusalem council was over, it seemed as as if this issue was solved. But the church in Galatia still had some false teachers trying to convince them they needed to be Jews in order to be Christians. And they came... They came under false testimony that they were sent by James, the brother of Jesus, the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And according to the context of the letter, they apparently claimed three major false teachings. One is that Paul was not a true apostle. Two, Paul's not teaching the true gospel. And three, Paul's teachings led to sinful lives because he didn't put the law first. So Paul addresses all of these in the letter to the Galatians. Now there's a ton of debate on who the Galatians were, but most likely Galatia referred to cities that Paul visited on his first missionary journey, such as Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Derby, and Lystra. However, regardless of the debate on time or people, there's no debate on the importance of the letter. As a matter of fact, Merrill C. Tenney, he wrote this about Galatians. He said, Christianity might have been just another Jewish sect and thought of the Western world, or the thought of the Western world, might have been entirely pagan had it never been written. This is the type of importance that is put on the letter. Now for us tonight, I want to read a couple of verses. I wish we could go through the entirety of Galatians because it's that awesome, but trust me, I know we can't and I will not attempt it. However, I do want to read a couple of verses in Galatians chapter 1. I'm going to read them, and then I want you to see a couple of things that I think are interesting. I'm going to start in verse number 6. This is Paul writing, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there's another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. 
But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now I want to pause here because there's plenty of things that we could look at and continue to read about. But I think it's interesting that after Paul introduces himself and who he's writing to in the first couple of verses, he jumps to a very, very important topic. Now, it's interesting in the letter to the Galatians, because if you read the other epistles of Paul, typically you will discover that Paul wrote the letter, and then shortly after that, he will praise whoever it is that he's writing to. Maybe I've heard about your love, or uh, uh, others have heard about your faith in Jesus, or I'm so excited about you know the work that God's doing in your church. I mean, he gives all these praises to most every other epistle, but not to Galatians. The writing is abruptly interrupted by what's happening to the Christians in Galatia. Now, I resonate with this moment. I'll tell you why. I got two young kids at home. And there are plenty of times where I get home, and here's how the conversation goes. You know, hadn't seen you. How's your day? Hugs. Love you. Missed you. What'd you learn? What happened? And it's pretty light, and it's awesome, and they're glad to see me, and I'm glad to see them. But there are other days where I get home and it's kind of what we would call family meeting kind of days, right? You've had these, you've experienced them, you may have been a part of them when you were a kid. These are the days where something at school didn't go like it was supposed to, right? Or this is the moment when after school you said something to mama that now you had to wait till daddy gets home, right? Like these are the moments where things didn't go how you thought they would, things didn't happen the way they normally happen. And so when dad gets home, instead of the fun loving type conversation to begin our discussion, it's business as soon as I walk in the door. This is exactly what's happening in the letter to the Galatians. There's no real time for pleasantries. It's right down to business. Paul seems, in my opinion, to be having a a family meeting with the church in Galatia. And the reason is because he's got to deal with some serious problems that they're facing. Now, from these verses, I want you to see these problems because they're not just problems that Paul faced then. They're still problems that the church is facing today. False teachers have not left. False doctrine is not gone. False gospels are everywhere, and we have the inclination as sinners to follow them. So for me tonight, here's what I feel like should happen in the context of the letter to the Galatians. We need a little family meeting tonight where we just kind of huddle up around the Word and say, okay, what do we learn from Paul that helps us today? And so I just I want to show you a few things about this family meeting that's significant to us. Here's the first one. First thing we see is Paul's wonder regarding desertion. This is an interesting moment in verse number 6. If you got your Bible, look back at it. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Now it's easy to see from the very beginning of their conversation, Paul's frustration in the words that he uses. He is astonished. He is 
purely amazed that they could do such a thing. Now, when I was looking at this word astonished, there was one particular example from the Old Testament that kind of paralleled what Paul was feeling in this moment with the people in Galatia. The moment came from Exodus chapter 32. Anybody want to guess what happened in Exodus 32? This is the golden calf scene. You remember that? Moses has led the people out. He is at Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments. And while he's on the mountain, he's there a little bit longer than the people want him to be. Now, they've just seen incredible things. They've just witnessed God do wonders like we cannot imagine. Yet, as they wait longer than they want to, they fashion for themselves a golden calf, and they begin worshiping that idol as if it was God, to the extent that they claim it was this golden calf that they fashioned that brought them out of Egypt. How ludicrous is that, right? And when Moses comes down from the mountain, Here's what it says. This is Exodus 32, 19. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. This is Paul's breaking the Ten Commandments kind of moment. This is the same kind of astonishment that Paul has that Moses had then. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Can you imagine Moses as he thinks of all the things that God brought them through? Of all the impossibilities that could have never happened apart from God and then so quickly sees the people turn against him. Can you imagine the astonishment in Moses' face? He was so astonished that it became anger and he didn't even know how to contain himself. Paul's thinking, we've seen what God's done. We've experienced grace through Jesus. We know what we did not deserve that He gave us. How could you turn from such love, from such grace? How quickly they had forgotten what God did and worshipped something else. This is the same emotion that Paul's feeling. He, he notes that not only was he astonished at them deserting him, but how quickly they actually did it as to say that they're in a hurry to leave the gospel soon after their conversion. Now, it doesn't appear that Paul's surprised, by the way, that there are false teachers trying to pull them away. That's not his shock. His shock is about how easy it was for those Christians to accept it. The word quickly can also mean readily or easily. You know what it made me think about? It made me think that desertion can happen when we seek comfort over what God desires. Like when it's easier for us to do what everybody else is doing, when it's easier for us to believe what everybody else is saying, when it's easier for us just to keep our mouths shut and hide in the back, when it's easier for us to not stand up, this is when desertion begins to take place. They would rather what was comfortable with the people around them than they would to go as God desired for them to go. I think about this moment, and I think that for Paul, he had to assume that this matter was finished. He had just spent a lengthy amount of time with all the church leaders of his day to make this decision known. And then he went about and shared this with all of the churches that he had already been to. However, clearly from the context of Galatians, 
Paul underestimated the passion of the Jews. Now this really shouldn't have been that surprising, because I don't know if you remember this, but Paul was once one of those passionate Jews. Remember how he would kill Christians just because of the name of Jesus? That's pretty passionate. He clearly forgot what it was like to be as zealous as the Jews were in this context. Now the word deserting is also an interesting word. It's used when describing a military revolt. In this case, the word carries with it a punishment equal to death. He's helping them see the picture that what they once rallied around enough to give their lives for, right? An army. They were laying it down for the sake of God. What they were so willing at one time to give everything to, now with just a little bit of persuasion, they are willing to run from, even to the point that it may cost them everything. Now what I think is fascinating with this word desertion, or deserting what God had been doing, is that these particular believers had everything that they needed not to run the other direction. They had no one to blame but themselves because even though outside forces forces were trying to confuse them, they had all they needed to stand against them. And I was processing that word and I thought about this. I think desertion can happen when we surrender certainty. You say, Danny, what do you mean? They're not just deserting an idea or a suggestion, but they're deserting the very God who called them to this faith. Paul takes the opportunity right here to point out the true meaning of the gospel. Now, he does it with a very simple phrase. It's the phrase, in the grace of Christ. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. God has called us out of darkness and into marvelous light through His grace offered in Jesus. And the moment that they turned from salvation, being by grace through faith in Jesus, they deserted the gospel. The moment they forgot the very certainties of salvation, they turned to another gospel. By the way, I'll make a little side note here. It should be noted that these false teachers who were most likely Jewish believers were Christians and a presence in the local church in Galatia. Now, I use the word Christians very loosely. What I mean when I say that is, these were not people outside. These were people inside. They weren't trying to change Jesus and His sacrifice or claim that He wasn't the Messiah. They weren't trying to take anything away. They were trying to add more to by adding the rituals and the ceremonies and the traditions. And it made me think about something else. I think desertion can happen when we state conditions. When Jesus is no longer enough. Nothing needs to be added. Jesus' death was sufficient. His grace is sufficient for me and for you. And when the law is added to God's grace, then His grace ceases to be grace. This is what Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 11, verse 6. He said, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. You see, the gospel is the gospel of grace, which is the divine redemption totally apart from any human achievement or merit. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Well, Paul put it like this to the church at Ephesus. He said, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. 
It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Listen, the most dangerous enemies of the gospel have never been atheism or paganism. The most dangerous enemies have been the different ways that supposedly Christians change small things in Scripture and try to make the gospel what they think. Oswald Chambers put it like this, Beware of bartering the Word of God for a more suitable conception of your own. Isn't that a dangerous place to be? When we think doctrine depends on me. When we think truth is really whatever I want it to be. Don't we just revert back to the judges who did what was ever was right in their own eyes. I don't know if you remember how that went for them, but it wasn't very good. You know what they needed? They needed a better king. You know what we need? A better king. Guess what? We have him. His name is Jesus. And if salvation is by any other means, then Paul would say you've deserted what God first called you to. You know what he's doing? He's having a family meeting. He said, hey, my children, don't forget, this is who God's called us to be. Here's the next part of the family meeting that I think is interesting. Paul's wisdom regarding distortion. He takes it a little further, right? Like the, the family meeting's interesting when, when Paul's wonder regarding desertion is made clear. But what about when Paul's wisdom regarding distortion is made clear? Here's what he says back in verse 7. Not that there is another one, right? He talks about once you've deserted the grace in Jesus, you have turned to another gospel. But there's really not another gospel. If it ended with verse 6, we would think that there are other gospels other than Jesus, but there's not. That's why Paul wrote, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Listen, there's only one true gospel, and that is Jesus. Anything that's either more or less is not the good news. It is not the gospel. I love what John Stott wrote. He said, to tamper with the gospel is to trouble the church. Indeed, the church's greatest troublemakers now as then are not those outside who oppose, ridicule, and persecute it, but those inside who try to change the gospel. Conversely, the only way to be a good church man is to be a good gospel man. The best way to serve the church is to believe and to preach the gospel. Now, I want to be clear in this moment. Paul isn't saying Christians shouldn't follow the law or live as moral people. That's not his argument. He's helping the early church and our church understand that Jesus is all that is needed for a relationship with God. If you start with anything else, you've missed the meaning of the gospel. Now listen, we just read the book of James. We remember how extremely practical he was, how he put our feet to the fire, how he said things like this. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So Danny, is Paul disagreeing with James? No. Paul would 100% agree with James. But before works can happen, faith in Jesus Christ must happen. Because of faith in Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer, we will begin to be changed from the inside out. What Paul's talking about is not putting the cart before the horse. 
Christians produce good fruit and works because of the grace of God. We don't produce good fruit and works in order to have the grace of God. Listen, don't mistake the result as the requirement. They're not the same thing. Following Jesus results in good works, but it doesn't require them in order for you to follow Him. If it did, we would be in a lot of trouble. Paul's issue was never that Jews still wanted to observe Jewish tradition. That's how you want to worship. Here's what Paul would say. That's fine. However, when you tell someone else that they have to agree to your preferences in order to be saved, you've missed it. Jesus plus nothing. Galatians oftentimes has been considered a condensed version of the letter to the Romans because of their similarities. One of the greatest ways to see this is in Romans 14, when Paul writes and speaks directly toward believers, putting their preferences on others. That is, my friends, not the gospel. Matter of fact, I listened to a podcast this week. This is a side note. Somebody recommended a podcast to me on gender identity. I don't listen to a whole lot of cultural um, issues. I really need to do more of it. And so these people know that, and they've been sending me some good things that they've been listening to, to just have a biblical perspective on some of the things that have become cultural norms in our world, but are really against God's standards. But the context of the conversation around gender identity really surfaced around a transgender woman. Now, if you're not real familiar with terminology, let me help you. A transgender woman is a man who identifies as a female. All right? So this is a guy who says psychologically, though I may biologically be a male, I think of myself as a female. Now, there's a lot of debates on what that looks like, how to deal with that, what, what that means for the church today. Listen, we can talk biologically, we can talk theologically, but at the end of the day, at some point in time, we have to talk psychologically. It is a real thing that a person thinks that and feels that and senses that. We cannot take away what they're experiencing in that moment. So we have to be careful when we're loving people like Jesus loves people. They say, Danny, are you saying transgender is okay? Of course not. Are you saying, Danny, you believe that that's fine if someone feels that way? Of course not, right? We know biologically there are men and there are women. We know theologically God made male and female and we're in the image of Him and we certainly want to hold on to the sanctity of the image bearer. 100%. But Danny, what do we do when somebody's wrestling with that who doesn't know Jesus, but we've got to make a stand on a moral issue and so will we lose that opportunity to tell them about Christ? That's what the discussion was centered around. Now I'm not here to have a conversation on gender identity. Maybe that's for another day. But here's where the conversation went that I thought was so powerful and speaks to what Paul's talking about at least a little bit in the letter to the Galatians. You know what I feel like has to be the first priority for someone who is lost wrestling with gender identity? It's not whether or not they're actually a male or a female. Before we can ever deal with some of those issues, that person needs to know they need Jesus. Now listen to me, friends. That's just one example. Well, Danny, how do we deal with politics? How do we deal with the culture around us? How do we love a secular world? How do we do this? How do we do that? How do we do this? You can have all kinds of ideas on how from a worldly standard you will deal with those things. And, and a lot of them are good and true. I'm not arguing that. What I'm saying is that when it comes to what's most important, 
above everything else. What's most important is Jesus, and we need people to meet Him. I can't fix your problems any more than I can fix my problems. But you know who can? Jesus can. And you know what happens when we give our lives to Him? He gets the authority over us. So you say, Danny, how can we change the world? Give people Jesus and nothing more or nothing less. That's what Paul's referring to. Is he saying Jewish things are horrible and terrible? No. Is he saying that Gentiles are worthless? No. Or they're better? No. He's saying Jesus is most important for every person. This is why the gospel is so significant. As a matter of fact, I, I want to make a couple clarifying statements. Because I want to help in case the gospel may be a confusing topic, even to believers who are in the room. Because I think one thing that Galatians does so beautifully is it gives us a perfect representation of what the gospel is. And listen, the gospel is simple. I'm not saying it doesn't have a lot of details. I'm not saying it's always the easiest. What I am saying is it's simple. You say, Danny, what do you mean? The word literally means good news. So Danny, why do we call it the gospel? Because it's the good news that Jesus came and lived a perfect life to be the sacrifice for your sins and my sins. His death broke the penalty of sin. His resurrection broke the power of sin. Now that He has victory over sin, death, and the devil, we can live in freedom. Here's how Paul put it to the church at Corinth. He said, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. What was of first importance? Don't miss it. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That's what was most important. You're saying, Danny, we shouldn't care about anything else in the world. No! What I'm saying is, don't get the cart before the horse. You want to see a lost world changed, guess what they need first? Jesus. Paul would later say in this very letter, Galatians 5.1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Let me show you a couple things. I'm going to put them up for you. It's so important when it comes to the gospel. You say, Danny, I'm not real good at communicating this. I think I know what I believe, but... I, you know, I've, I've heard the gospel said so many different times. It's such a buzzword. I don't even really know if, if I'm clear on the effects anymore. Well, well I want to give you a couple of things. The first one is the gospel deals with the why of salvation. It's very, very important to the why. You say, why? Thank you. Why do we need Jesus? Well, because we were born into a sinful world with a sinful nature. If you were to go all the way back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 3. It seems like a very short period of time, at least in, you know, in, in, in relative to, to the, all of the Bible and the text that's there, seems like a very small, short period of time, even though it may have been longer, where people enjoyed perfect communion with God. Chapter 1 and chapter 2. By chapter 3, everything fell apart. Adam and Eve chose to disobey God Sin entered the world. Our relationship with Him was broken. And now every person born on this planet is a sinner by nature. Doesn't matter what you do, you come into this world sinful. Say, Danny, how do we know? Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know what happens because of our sin? 
Paul would later say in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. That's it. Danny, why do we need salvation? Because our sin separates us from a holy God, and without payment, without the debt being paid, the only way it could be paid is death. It's a problem, right? You with me? The gospel deals with the why of salvation. We have a problem that we can't deal with. We're in trouble if we're left to ourselves. But the gospel also deals with the what of salvation. All right, why do we need Jesus? Sin, got it. Well, what did Jesus do to fix that problem? His perfect life was the only sacrifice worthy to make us right with God. Don't forget, the debt we owed, it was death. Do you think there's a coincidence that Jesus died? Of course not, right? We call it the gospel. The payment that God required was a perfect life sacrificed in death. Well, there was only one who was perfect. And so Jesus willingly took our place and paid our debt by climbing on the cross to become the perfect sacrifice for the sins of the world. Now, don't miss this. The gospel is not just good news for you who are in this room who know Jesus. The gospel is good news for the entire world. That's the greatest motivation why we don't just sit in this room and then go home and do nothing. We take what happens in this room and we spread it to the world because it's not just good news for you and me. It's good news for everybody. Jesus died not just for you, not just for me, but for the entire world. As a matter of fact, process this. Even the people who have died and went to hell because they did not profess Jesus, they gave a double payment for their sin. Because they paid it, but so did Jesus. Man, what a world of difference it would have been. Somebody would have told them they didn't have to. Jesus already did it. I don't know if you realize this, but the cross was for us. Jesus just happened to take our place. John put it like this in 1 John chapter 2. He said, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation, the payment for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I'm so thankful that Jesus doesn't wait for us to become good enough or do enough good things. We will never be able to do that. Instead, He died for sinners. This is why Paul wrote in Romans 5.8, But God showed His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Don't miss this, okay? The, the, the why of salvation and the what of salvation. We owed a debt we could not pay, so what did Jesus do? He died to pay our debt. Now, a lot of times we stop there. We think, great, I'm glad that happened. This is what happened with the Galatians. They said, yeah, 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 we believe all that. But instead of continuing to trust in the gospel, they then said, even though Jesus did that, now I have to do this, 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 and that. No! That's not the gospel, friends. It's Jesus plus nothing. You say, Danny, what do you mean? The gospel doesn't just deal with why or what. It deals with how. How is salvation played out for the rest of my days? Do I trust in Jesus' death and then work it out in my own power? No. Do I trust in His death and then live by my works and my abilities? No. 
The same faith that I placed in Him to receive salvation is the same faith I place in Him as I continue to trust Him more and more and more every single day. I love what Paul wrote later in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. You may know this, you may not. It's my favorite verse. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. He doesn't just say, I've been saved by faith. He says, I live my life every day in the same faith in the Son of God that saved me, who loved me, and gave Himself for me. You know what he would later say to the Galatians in chapter 5? For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. That's it. So Danny, what is the gospel? It is the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ for the justification of our sins. It's beautiful. You say, Danny, who needs it? Everybody. You say, Danny, if I'm already a Christian, do I still need it? Every single The gospel was not a one-time transaction that you never think about again. That's what you think the gospel is. Friends, listen, you're following a different gospel. You need repentance now because the gospel is not just a decision you made, a transaction that happened long ago. It is a daily commitment to continue to live in faith in Jesus. I don't know about you, friends, but I need the gospel more and more and more. You know what Paul says? He says, listen, don't let these people trouble you. That's what he writes in verse number 7. There are some who trouble you, want to distort the gospel of Christ. This word trouble you is really interesting. It means to agitate, to stir up. It comes to mean a deep emotional disturbance that results in an unsettled mind. As a matter of fact, it's used all over the place. It's the word used to describe Herod when he heard about the birth of Jesus back in Matthew chapter 2. He was troubled. It's the word used of the disciples when they saw Jesus walk on water. Matthew chapter 14. You know what it says? They were troubled. It's the word used of Zacharias when he saw the angel of the Lord to talk about the birth of John the Baptist in Luke chapter 1. He saw that angel. Guess what he thought? I am troubled. It was used by Jesus when he said, Let not your hearts be troubled in John chapter 14. It's used again by Peter in Acts chapter 15 verse 24 when he stood at the Jerusalem council and fought on behalf of the Gentiles. You know what he told his Jewish brothers? He said, let not us trouble them with all these Jewish rituals. Now Paul's reminding them, salvation has nothing to do with what I can do, but what Jesus has already done. Ah, there's so much in Galatians. Let's keep going. Let me show you the next part of the family meeting because we got to hurry up. I'm just going to give you the stuff that's important. We need to go back to Galatians 1 and read through Galatians 6. Are you ready? No, I'm just kidding. Next part of the family meeting is Paul's warning regarding destruction. This is an interesting moment. I wish we had more time to spend here. Maybe we will at some point in time. But if you remember in verse 8, Paul says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. In other words, listen, the gospel is more important than anything or anyone. Doesn't matter. Something comes from heaven, tries to tell you it's different. There is no other gospel. Nothing, anything or anyone can change that. John put it this way in 2 John chapter 1. He said, 
Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Here's what he says. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in this wicked work. Listen, Paul's serious. He's serious about the destruction that comes to those who teach the wrong gospel. Listen, if legalism was being followed, then Jesus died in vain. Paul said this in Galatians 2.21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Which is why he repeats himself, I think, in verse number 9. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Listen, stand in opposition to anyone that preaches something other than Jesus because destruction is their end. Now I want to I hone in on something just really quick, even though I wish we had more time to unpack it. There is thought that let him be accursed is kind of an unforgivable type of sin. If someone teaches something falsely, they are condemned for all eternity. What's interesting is that the word accursed really does mean that. It means to be eternally condemned. I think it's less about the false teaching, although that is bad. I think the stern warning to anyone who would lead people away from Jesus is not simply because they're leading people away from Christ, but because they don't know Jesus. If you're teaching a gospel contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ, you can't believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, your sin is not so much that you're leading people away, is as much as it is you don't know Jesus. And listen, friends, let me tell you what is unforgivable. When you step into eternity and you never made Jesus the Lord and Savior of your life, God will look at you and say, depart from me, I never knew you, and you will be eternally condemned, separated from God forever. You say, Danny, will it be because of false teaching? Well, if that's the way you live out, your sinful nature instead of following Jesus, then yes. But can I tell you something, friends? There's a lot of other ways you can live out your sinful nature in rejection of Jesus. The point is, rejection of Jesus equals eternal separation from God, however it is you do it. Let me show you this last one. Oh, it was only one. Sorry. I didn't know if it was all together or not. This is the final part of the family meeting. Paul's witness regarding devotion. I love what he says in verse 10 because he's going against the claim that was happening. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. I love this quote by John Phillips. Paul is willing to become all things to all people, but he never compromised a conviction or watered down a truth. Listen, if he wanted to please people, he wouldn't have suffered the way he did. He would have gave in, made everybody happy, and his life would have been a lot easier. But instead, he dies at the hands of a cruel emperor because he would not back down from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, the Bible references false teachers so many different times. We could have we could spend our entire time tonight just reading the verses and not even having any commentary whatsoever. However, one thing remains true. False teachers are everywhere and always looking to turn you away from Jesus. There are plenty of them in our churches today. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Well, there's the, the gospel of material prosperity. 
right? We call this the prosperity gospel. That Jesus is the way to financial gain. Or the gospel of family values. Here's what it teaches. That Jesus is the way to a happy home. Or the gospel of self, which teaches that Jesus is the way to personal fulfillment. Or the gospel of religious tradition. That Jesus is the way to respectability. Or the gospel of morality. That Jesus is the way to be a good person. Listen, what makes these other gospels so dangerous is that the things they offer are all beneficial. It's good to be prosperous, to have a happy home, to be well behaved. All of these things are good, but they're not the good news. See the difference? The good news is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So here's my suggestions for you to deal with false teachers. Know the Word. Man, how much time do you spend with Jesus to know the difference between a truth and a lie? It's going to be hard to know the difference if you're never spending time there. Know the Word. Stand against them. Don't let them have any place. Don't entertain their thoughts. Don't give in to the comforts. Stand against them. This is not the Gospel. And friends, expect opposition. Not everybody wants to stand on Jesus alone. And when you do, you better believe the Bible is filled with occasions where we will experience opposition. False Gospels are everywhere. False teachers, even more so. Will you know the truth from the lie? So family meeting. Let's make sure we know the Gospel and we're living according to Jesus.